Welcome, listeners, to another episode of Listen, Learn, and Love, hosted by Richard Osler. My guests on today's podcast are the Edwards family. In my home here in Salt Lake City is Jeannie Edwards. She is married to Clay Edwards, who's not here. And with her is her gay son, Sean, who is married to Matt. Um, They have two other children. And we're just going to talk about their story as an LDS family raising a gay son that's now moving forward in his life in a same-sex marriage and has a wonderful career. This is a podcast to just try to bring us together as the same human family. Jeannie is active in the church in New Jersey, has served for many years. She'll share more of her story. And in fact, let me just turn it over to Jeannie to give a bio and introduce her family to our listeners. Well, hello. We are really excited to be here today, Richard. Um, I've been listening to your podcast for a lot of years now. It's been very helpful to me and my husband. So I'm originally from Blackfoot, Idaho, but my parents came from China. And we were the only Chinese family in the entire town. So it was a kind of an interesting childhood there. I'm married to my husband, Clay, who's from Las Vegas. We've been married for 40 years. And we met while we were attending BYU. I'm currently a high school teacher. I'm teaching special ed. And we've been living in Princeton, New Jersey for the past 33 years. We have three kids. Our oldest daughter is named Elaine. She's now 36. She has autism, and she lives only 10 minutes away from us in the group home. Her life hasn't been easy, but we absolutely adore her. Our youngest daughter is Krista. She's 26. Krista graduated from BYU, and she's currently an eighth-grade English teacher. And she's starting a master's program this summer in educational leadership. And then today, joining me today is our son, Sean. He's our middle child. He's 32, and he's currently a vice principal at a high school. Uh, Sean served a mission to Las Vegas. He has degrees from BYU and administrator's license from Utah State. And he's currently working on a doctorate degree in educational leadership at the University of Utah. And then last but not least, Sean is married to Matt. He is 26. Matt is working on a graduate degree at the University of Utah in public policy. And he's currently employed at uh, the University of Utah, working in epidemiology research. So I'd like to just read a quote about people's experiences. Um, this is by Elder Jean R. Cook. One reason why our personal experiences are so effective is because they have touched our hearts. And when we speak of things that we feel deeply, it's more likely we'll be able to touch the hearts of others. So we kind of hope this is what we do today with this podcast. We hope our story will uh, resonate with someone who needs to hear it. We're not saying all the decisions we made were right for everyone. We know we made mistakes. We hope to share some of those. And we hope to share some of the good decisions we made on this journey. It's a great introduction. Thank you. Jeannie and Sean are sitting right next to each other, listeners. We're we're having some technical difficulties. We only have two working mics, one for me, and they're sharing one. So they're just, it's, I think it's kind of symbolic that they're just sitting right next to each other. Um, you can just tell this is a beautiful family love story. Um, that was a great introduction. Let's talk. Here's just some questions I'm going to ask you. What did you know about gay people as you were growing up? I guess I'll start. Um, definitely. It was not a subject on my radar. The family I grew up in, we never discussed anything about sexuality. It wasn't until high school that I first heard 
the word gay and that there were people who were attracted to the same sex. Um, but I didn't think much about it. It seemed like when I did hear it, it was spoken about in derogatory ways. And then I went to BYU and again, I never heard, I never knew anybody that was gay. I may have known someone who's gay, but I didn't know I knew. And I think the first time I had a real discussion about this was with my husband, Clay. And when we were first dating, because he had some mission friends who came out as gay. And as we discussed it, we concluded that we didn't believe it could possibly be a choice because we thought, well, who would choose such a difficult path? Sean, do you have some thoughts to add? Yes. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> hi, listeners. This is Sean. Um, I, uh, I definitely remember the very first time I even heard the word gay. And it's so vivid in my memory. I was on the school bus on the way to school. I was in sixth grade. And um, somebody on the bus said to another student, you're so gay. And it was used in a very condescending and derogatory way, or the tone was very negative. And I could just tell that the person who was being told this did not like it. Um, all I remember is just thinking to myself, wow, I hope nobody would ever call me that, even though I didn't know what it meant. Um, you know, little did I know <laughs> at that time um, that, that I was gay. Um, and then throughout my years as a young adult, I was uh, taught as many other youth that acting on gay behaviors or tendencies is evil and inherently bad. And it was probably around my freshman year in high school when I really started to identify with being attracted to other guys. Um, and you're in New Jersey. You're in Princeton? Correct. Yeah, this is in New Jersey. And um, I think the messages that I heard at church, I internalized and um, I thought that they were saying, oh, well, acting on gay tendencies is bad. So therefore I am bad. And um, this flawed, but very real thinking to me at the time um, led me to have feelings of a lot of guilt and shame growing up being attracted to guys and as a member of the church. Um, and so that's kind of, I guess, my experience with just that terminology of gay growing up. That's great. What was it like um, living in New Jersey as members of the LDS Church? I paused. Oh, I didn't pause. Sorry, listeners. Well, New Jersey is the lowest per capita for members of our church. So there weren't a lot of us, but our wards are very close. We've become almost like a big family there. There's lots of opportunities to serve in the church. Um, my husband, Clay, he served in many bishoprics, including being bishop. Um, and I served in your usual callings. Um, I was also an early morning seminary teacher. And I've been a Relief Society president on both the ward and just recently the stake level. And I think we're pretty much your typical LDS family. We're busy raising our families and working in our jobs and serving in the church. Um, when our kids turned eight, we decided we wanted to start bringing them out to general conference at least once a year to see their cousins, but especially to see the huge amount of church members that they didn't know about. 
We want them to learn to love the church and especially learn to love the leaders. And they did. They actually loved coming out for general conference. Yeah, I would um, add to that. I'm, I'm very thankful for my experience growing up in, in New Jersey. I got to meet a lot of different people and um, just interact with people from all different walks of life. And I think that diversity that I grew up around really helped to enrich my life and my worldview um, and just really, you know, broadened my, my perspective of all the different um, cultures and wonderful people that are out there. Uh, one of the greatest challenges for me um, was being a member of the church in New Jersey. There just aren't very many of us. And so throughout my four years in high school, I remember there were two, um, maybe three, depending on on the year, active members of the church in my high school. And many of my peers didn't understand what, quote, Mormon, unquote, meant and just made a lot of assumptions about polygamy, caffeine, some of our other, other, our other cultural isms. Um, and I ended up being teased quite a bit for my standards and for my beliefs. Would they ask you how many moms you had? Yeah. Yeah. I got that a lot. How many moms do you have? I'm like, well, one. <laughs> and she's okay. <laughs> I think of Elder Eyring and his general conference talks, you know, yes. and I think he lived in that part of New Jersey, from what I remember. Yep. Um, what were your memories of Sean telling you he was gay? Jeannie, why don't you go first? At some point, Sean tells he's gay. Okay. Well, I think when he was in high school, I started noticing that he was fasting and praying a lot, which I thought was kind of odd. Um, most of the time during fast Sunday, we couldn't even get our kids to make it to lunch. And I thought it was, I was a little concerned that he was fasting so much and that he would never tell me why. Um, but I recently heard someone say, instead of coming out, they kind of like the term letting me in. So I, well, Sean let me into his life on May 23rd, 2006 at 530 um, I actually had this dream the night before that Sean told me he was gay and it never had occurred to me until that dream. And I woke up, um, almost, almost in a sweat and I was confused and I was just like, oh, so relieved that it was only a dream. I don't think I ever thought or said anything mean or judgmental about gay people, but I know I never said anything good either. We had a friend that was gay, and he was always welcome to our home and in our lives. But I guess uh, for some very unrealistic reason, it just never occurred to me that one of my kids could be gay. So the day Sean let me into his life, I had just taken his dog to the vet, and I went up to his bedroom to tell him about the, the vet appointment. And then Sean turned to me, and he looked at me with this very serious look, and he said, I have something serious to tell you. And I'm thinking, oh, he wrecked the car or something. Um, and then he started having this kind of nervous laughter and he actually said, I don't know why I'm laughing because it's actually really serious. Um, and then he just told me that he felt he was gay, that he was having gay feelings. And, you know, I, I could have reacted better. I think I said things like, are you sure? I mean, I'm, I'm sure he'd been thinking about it for a long time. I'm sure he was sure, but I wasn't sure he knew. Uh, and then I said, well, it's not exactly normal. 
And I saw the look on his face like I was calling him abnormal. And then I kind of backed off of that. And I said, well, I mean, like, it's not something parents are expected to hear from their children. Like, this is a curveball to me. And then, you know, I remembered the dream. And in the dream, and it wasn't one of those dreams where there's a lot of symbolism. I mean, it was exactly what I need to say. I think Heavenly Father must know. I couldn't interpret dreams very well. So it was just that, tell him that you love him and you're going to be on this journey with him and it's going to be okay. And so that's what I told him. Um, I really felt like it was a manifestation of God's love for him because he gave me this dream. And, uh, and I just felt like somehow God would fix it. I wasn't sure how or how we would end up, but I had peace that God knew about what was going on in our room that day. Wow, what a beautiful family experience. Thank you for sharing. That's pretty sacred stuff. This is sacred places often on this podcast. Sean, share your thoughts. Yeah. Um, well, I'm glad that my mom remembers. And I think you're about 17 if I'm doing the math on 2006. Yep. Yep. It was right before I graduated from high school. Um, and I'm glad my mom remembers a lot of that experience because I don't remember too many of the details other than how I felt at the time. And um, I just remember feeling very scared. Um, and then I also asked my mom to tell my dad that I was gay because I was so afraid that he would be disappointed in me. Um, I remember feeling real, a sense of relief after telling my mom that I'm gay while at the same time also feeling very overwhelmed, scared, anxious, um, and apprehensive about the future. And that's kind of, that's kind of what I remember. So I'm glad my mom has kept some good memories <laughs> of that experience. I remember that night after he told me peeking in on, cause I couldn't sleep the whole night. So I'm like peeking in on him while he's sleeping, he's sleeping soundly. And I felt like, he kind of took uh, what was on his shoulders and kind of placed part of that on mine. I will gladly give all my burdens and give them to you. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> I've always felt, listeners, that moms have kind of a special place often. Well, they do for all of their kids. And often I felt moms in particular with LGBTQ youth um, receive personal revelation on how to walk with their kids. I love what you said. We'll be on this journey together. You know. What a great thing to say to an LGBTQ youth. We'll be on this journey together. I'll walk with you is one of my favorite primary songs. And I just love that. Talk about um, what did you do in the years following Sean's coming out? Well, Sean came out to us his senior year, as we said. Um, so 15 years ago, for an LDS family, there was like no support or information out there. There is no podcast like yours would have been definitely a lifeline to us. Um, there's no books. Again, like your book <laughs> would have been so helpful. There is no positive or supporting Facebook groups or even posts that I could find. Um, so the first thing as, you know, as LDS members were taught to do, we looked to the church. And there, um, the one booklet that I found was called The Strength of Youth. And in that booklet, which Sean had, I probably found it from his bedroom, 
on page 37, it said, if you find yourself struggling with same gender attraction or you're being persuaded to participate in inappropriate behavior, seek, seek counsel from your parents and bishop. They will help you. And you know what? I was kind of upset because I was like, what? I've never heard a lesson in the church about what to do when your child comes out as gay. I've never read written materials. And I felt like they were kind of putting it in my lap, but they hadn't taught me how to, what to do or how to say or how to deal with this. Um, and then as time went on, I started, of course, looking for more research from church leaders. And mostly everything I could find was painful to me. Um, the words that were used to describe gay people were words I wouldn't ever use to describe anyone. I was learning. I found I was learning opinions from straight people, but they didn't know my good son who had tried so hard to follow Christ's teachings. So it didn't take me long to stop looking for answers from church leaders because it just wasn't helping and it just felt so hurtful to me. And after, as Sean said, you know, he gave me the responsibility to tell his dad. <laughs> and it took, it took Clay a few days to process it. Um, I remember thinking, did he hear me? Because he just didn't want to talk about it for about three days. But then I remember praying with him and he prayed that we would find ways to, to love Sean better. And it sounded like a really good course for us to follow. In some ways, I felt like we were like the Israelites you know, wandering, and every once in a while you get some manna, and for us, manna was personal revelation mostly. Um, but loving Sean just seemed to be the our best course of action at that time. Sean, thoughts about you in these years? Yeah, for sure. Um, I want to say, so, Mom, you you mentioned a quote from that "For the Strength of Youth" mm-hmm. pamphlet, and it said. Quote, if you find yourself struggling with same gender attraction, um, close quote. And I feel like that in many ways is kind of the rhetoric that we need to change within how we view LGBTQ people. Because looking back on my experience, it wasn't same sex or same gender attraction or being gay that I struggled with. It was people's perceptions of LGBTQ people um, and the expectations for change. That's what I struggled with. And so um, in many ways, I think that we need to be more progressive in this area and be very thoughtful and careful about the language that we're using to describe people who are LGBTQ+. Um, But thinking about my um, coming out experience and, and kind of some of the years following Um, my parents asked me to start attending therapy. Um, and it was, it was a form of conversion therapy in a sense that there was an agenda to make me straight. Um, and in some ways the, that experience was helpful because I got to spend very intentional time just talking about and processing my feelings with someone else, something that I've never done before. Um, On the other hand, it probably was harmful in many ways because for years, the implicit and explicit messages that I was receiving from these therapy sessions was, well, you can change your sexuality if you just try hard enough. 
And even though I didn't realize it at the time, I think those messages really perpetuated those feelings of guilt and shame, just inadequacy all around um, that was reinforced by those messages. And I have no ill feelings or, um, you know, bad feelings towards my parents for asking me to go to therapy with the very limited resources that they had at the time. Uh, I just feel like they were doing whatever they could to find me support. So if anything, I'm just super grateful that they spent the time and energy to find anything that could be supportive or helpful. Um, you two are doing a great job. Talk about um, BYU. BYU, go Cougs. <laughs> Um, my experience at BYU, I love BYU. Um, it was definitely a roller coaster um, of emotions throughout my years there. I had amazing and great experience experiences and equally many challenging and difficult experiences. Um, it was hard to move to Utah and attend BYU coming from such a diverse place and not knowing really anyone in the community at the time being a person of color, being gay in Provo just made life feel very lonely many, a lot of times. Um, and I definitely had some false expectations when I came to BYU. You know, in the church, um, I was just expecting everyone to be um, the person that we learned to be um, in church, you know, kind, loving, and caring. Um, but I soon found out that, you know, People are human. People make mistakes. And we're all on a different learning path and journey. And, um, you know, that wasn't going to be necessarily my experience interacting with every member of the church at BYU. I remember I was called to be a Sunday school teacher in one of my wards, um, which I was super excited about because I love teaching. And I remember one Sunday, and I had been teaching Sunday school for a few months at this time. Um, but one Sunday after teaching a lesson, I went up to a group of guys um, that came to the lesson and I just said, thank you so much for coming to the Sunday school lesson today. I appreciate you guys being here. And one of them told me, um, he said, do you know a lot of people in the ward actually come to your Sunday school class to make fun of you? Um, and then he went on to tell me that my very flamboyant teaching approach just gave something for people to laugh at and make fun of. Um, and that really hurt me. Wow. Um, and unfortunately, discriminatory statements at BYU against gay people just, they weren't atypical, especially 10 plus years ago. Um, so that's just one kind of microcosm of what I experienced at BYU. But not every experience was negative. Um, I feel like I'm a pretty sociable person. So I feel like I was able to make a lot of really good friends um, that were my support system through these years, especially the girls in my undergraduate program. I was the only guy in my undergraduate program. Um, and I also met some amazing black, indigenous, people of color, BYU students that I became really amazing friends with. And when I think about the friends that I made, um, I feel very fulfilled with my experience at BYU. Um, talk about your mission, Sean. Um, tell us more about your mission and tell us a secondary question is advice for any young man or young woman who are LGBTQ about a mission. Oh, I loved my mission. Um, share with our listeners where you went. Yeah, I served in the Nevada-Las Vegas West Mission. So, you know, just down 
I-15, not too far. Um, and I, I met some of the greatest people on my mission. I mean, from the members that I met, the people that I taught, um, just people I interacted with on the street, uh, my companions, other missionaries, I just will be connected with and um, feel connected to these people forever. Um, there's no doubt in my mind that my mission was very personally designed for me. Um, and even though I don't ever want to ride a bike in that 120 degree heat ever again, um, it was still a great experience. Um, to that question about, you know, someone who's maybe LGBTQ plus and um, is thinking about serving a mission, I would say um, just remember that going on a mission is really a personal decision between you and the Lord. Um, don't let social pressures be the reason that you serve a mission. I feel like there's this kind of terrible cultural expectation within the church that you have to serve a mission at a certain time in your life. And people shouldn't have to live under that pressure. Um, the choice to serve a mission should be completely dependent upon the personal revelation you receive from the Lord. I mean, I didn't leave on my mission until I was 23 years old. I had taught at a public school for a year, even before going on my mission. And so I was definitely older than a lot of the other people on my mission, but that's when I felt prompted to go. And I'm super glad that I made that decision to go when I did. I didn't have that feeling at 18 or 19 years old, and that's okay. Um, if, you know, if anyone out there is thinking of serving a mission and they feel that going at 18 or 19 years old is right for them, then great. If it's going at 23 years old, great. And even if it's never to go, that's great too. Um, no one's worth is dependent upon whether or not they serve a mission. Looking back where you are now, are you glad you served a mission? I am. I My mission um, was an incredible experience. I really drew close with uh, my Father in Heaven, with my Savior, Jesus Christ, and with His teachings that have impacted my life in such a way that I don't, I, there's not a day that goes by that I don't reflect on some component of my mission in some way. Um, and my husband feels very similarly too. He served in California, Fresno, Hmong speaking, and um, we talk about our missions all the time together and how informative to our lives those experiences were. So yes, very glad I served a mission. Jeannie, do you have thoughts on any of these subjects? Um, well, I loved the time when Sean was on his mission. He was, um, you know, because he was a little older, he was giving a lot of responsibilities on his mission. And um, he had these great spirit-filled letters. And I just, you know, I said to my husband several times, um, that I knew this was just a short, wonderful phase in our lives. I knew that when he came home, we would kind of have to pick up things where we left him. But he had, he served in Las Vegas where my husband's from. So there would be times he would see grandma in the sandwich shop or something. <laughs> and she'd come running out and call us. And it was, it was like two wonderful years of our lives while he was on his mission. And I'm really grateful for those two years. That's a really good segment. And we've talked about this before for those of you that are LGBTQ youth that feel good about serving a mission, but may not sure your future post-mission and worry that you're standing with God is worse off if you go through the temple and serve a mission and then 
perhaps find yourself where Sean finds himself married to a man. And I don't, I would just, I would just do what this couple, this group did is pray about it and ask Heavenly Father what's right for you. Because I recognize that because Sean served a mission, there's a lot of people in Vegas area that are better off. And Sean's better off. He has this relationship with Heavenly Father, the Savior, and this great deep grounding. So I would just go back to what they're teaching is personal revelation, but don't sort of, because you're you're not sure about your future, sort of retroactively then say, that disqualifies me from a mission now. I just would separate those two a little bit and make a thoughtful decision based on what feels right for right now. I do like Elder Bednar's talk where you kind of step into the fog and you kind of can see the next step to take and you take it and then you understand more as you continue to make your way forward. Um, hope that's okay, listeners. That's just the way I process that. Um, talk about coming home from your, after this wonderful, successful mission. Coming home. <laughs> um, you know, the, the transition into the mission field, it's interesting because you get to go to the MTC. You know, there's kind of like getting into the field, but then coming home, it's just like you're, you're, you're home. <laughs> um, that transition is very abrupt. And uh, the few years after my mission, 2013 to 2016, were very hard. I would probably say those were the probably the hardest years of my life. Um, I knew coming home from my mission that I wanted to get married and find a companion that I would be with forever. Um, and ultimately, when you break that core value down, after considering my feelings of um, attraction to men and all the, you know, complications with that and wanting to, you know, see if I could get matched also with a woman, if that would work. Um, ultimately, I knew I needed to make a decision. Either I wanted to marry a man or I wanted to marry a woman. Um, and they're really there's not really any words that can accurately describe like the pain and the, the hardship, um, the confusion and the hurt that I experienced navigating that space in trying to make a decision. Um, during this time, uh, there were definitely, there were three very memorable events that occurred that really helped me to get to where I am now. Um, the first one is in 2016. Um, it was, they all kind of happened around the same time. It was all in the fall of 2016. Um, I went to a Sunday school lesson that my bishop was teaching and the lesson was on preparing for marriage because that's like every lesson in a YSA ward. Um, and in the lesson, um, my bishop said, there are three non-negotiables of marriage. He said, one was connection with God. The other was an emotional connection with your spouse and then he said, the third component of every marriage is that you are physically attracted to one another. And at this point in my life, I had already kind of reconciled the idea that I'm going to have attraction to men for the rest of my life. So hearing this was very illuminating. Um, it was hard to hear, but it was also kind of a, something that I needed to hear. Now, I don't think that statement is, you know, in church doctrine anywhere, um, by any means, but for me, it really helped me to process kind of where I was at. Um, very soon after that experience, I was reading in the book of Mormon, um, on a Saturday evening and came across second Nephi two twenty five, which many of us know and love 
Adam fell that men might be and men are that they might have joy. And I thought to myself, oh, these last few years have been so hard. Like, where is the joy? Because I'm not, I'm not finding it. Um, and it was at this time that I started to think, maybe I need to start dating men with the intention to get married and just let go of the burden of a lot of the church expectations. The next day after reading that scripture was stake conference. And I remember praying for some sort of revelation, a, a sign or something that would come to me. Um, so I went to stake conference and the very first speaker walked to the pulpit and the first words that came out of her mouth, even before introducing herself or talking about her topic, um, she said, Adam fell that men might be and men are that they might have joy. And I knew right then and there that the Lord was telling me that my thoughts and feelings were valid, um, that it was okay for me to start dating men and that I was valid and good in his eyes and that this is what he wanted for me, that he wanted me to be happy on this earth. I felt like at that time that I had received his blessing. Um, and then after that experience, it was like a week after that, like these things really all fell like right in line. It's so interesting. Um, I flew home to New Jersey uh, just to spend a weekend with my parents. It was our fall break. And I told them about my recent experiences with um, state conference and at church. And I just told them, I'm going to start dating men. I'm not going to even entertain the idea of dating women because it was causing me too much pain. Um, my mom and dad were super supportive and they told me that that's what they wanted for me. Um, and it's so interesting that happened in 2016 and I came out to my mom in 2006. And so the past, you know, just during that decade, the amount of growth that not only I've experienced, but that they've experienced has been such a wonderful and beautiful thing. And I'm, I'm so proud, um, just of my parents for being so open and I'm just so grateful that they, um, have just loved me and supported me the whole way. Great job, Sean. Jeannie, your thoughts. Oh, wait, I do want to, I also want to say, sorry, I'm taking the mic. Um, I also want to say after this conversation that I had with my parents in October of 2016, it was only like two months later that I started talking to my now husband, Matt. Um, so the timing Are is just, done? I, I'm done. <laughs> Okay, so the listeners can't see Sean, but he's actually a really cute boy. And he never, ever lacked for attention from girls. And, uh, and he seemed like he kind of liked it, although I think he just liked having attention now. <laughs> but um, I, when he came home from his mission, he started dating this great girl. And she knew about Sean's attraction to men, but she still wanted to see if they could find out find a way to make that relationship work. And they seemed to have some good experiences together and her family loved him. And I thought there's this tiny possibility that maybe this could work out. And then one night, Sean calls me. He's driving home after seeing her and he tells me that he had to break it off with her. And then I heard myself saying, well, if you can't do it, you can't do it. And it was kind of the turning point for me to realize he has done he has taken a decade trying to make it work. And I realized 
I just felt like Heavenly Father was telling me that he has accepted all of the sacrifices that we all tried to make to live within this realm that we call the church. Um, I heard myself um, talking to Heavenly Father, and as I prayed about it, I heard the Lord saying, haven't I spoken peace to you thousands of times about Sean? And he had. I, I just assumed the answer would be he would fix it. But my answer was he wasn't going to fix it, but he still had a purpose for Sean. So then Sean, while all the stuff is going on with Sean in 2016, he sends us this email and he details everything that he has done. And he actually uses the word he's feeling downtrodden. And I had heard that word in kind of religious context, but all of a sudden I could see what that word meant. He wasn't our optimistic, happy Sean anymore. He was sometimes really cranky and he just wasn't himself. So we told Sean and my husband and I both together felt you need to come home this weekend. So we bought him a plane ticket. And he came home, and as we heard his story, we knew that it was time for him to pursue his happiness and that we would support him in anything, wherever his happiness brought him. And as we were talking, my husband and I, we both actually started feeling super happy and excited for the possibilities for him. And we told him if he dates men and he finds someone special that we want to meet him right away because we want to be a part of their lives. And like Sean said, a couple months later, he met Matt. And Matt is just such a super awesome person. We are just really lucky to have him in our family. There's just a, a good spirit, listeners, as I'm listening to these two. And I'm grateful for them sharing their story and just the personal revelation that they're receiving in their lives. And I've sort of come to the conclusion that my personal revelation doesn't give me the ability to judge other pe people's personal revelation. So some could say that, Sean, just whatever we would say to dismiss your feelings about your future, but I've learned to, that I'm just not, I'm just going to honor what you feel is right for you and the personal revelation you're receiving and just leave that at the Savior's feet. And I think this is what you're doing you're moving forward and your mother and father are moving forward with you, walking with you and, and just keeping the family circled together and keeping your future full of hope the way you feel. I suppose the way you feel it works for you. Um, and maybe you've answered this question. I'll ask it. Is there a turning point that brought to where you are now? Um, yeah, I would say that, um, well, first, thank you for for your sentiments. I really I really appreciate that. Um, you know, there's people in the world that respect our experience, that honor our experience. So, thank you. Um, you know, I would I would say that as far as a turning point, just receiving the the support from others was, especially my parents, is when that happened for me, um, and feeling that support from the Lord. Um, I think he had very carefully, you know, 
helped me, that he was walking alongside me through this process. And definitely um, meeting Matt and experiencing um, companionship with him and and our dating experience, um, getting married. I mean, that has all just um, solidified for me that this, I'm in the right place. This is where I need to be. Jeannie, thoughts on that? Well, for me, I think it's really personal revelation, as you talked about. Um, And, you know, there's some parameters when I believe I've received revelation. And usually it's, I'll have peace. I will have learned something. And it's usually the good fruit. And I've seen the really good fruit that they, that was been born through their marriage. You know, so many people have been helped because of Sean and Matt. I've had parents and students tell me from his high school that the whole high school feels safer and kinder because Sean is there. And I recently went with Sean to the circle and I saw firsthand how these young people really connected with him. And I had parents come up to me and say, how did you raise such a confident young man? So that's kind of when I knew we should do a podcast with you and tell our story because they really have a, a story of hope that others need to hear. A story of hope. That to me is the greatest gift of the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's the greatest gift we can give each other. It's the greatest thing we can do as parents. And we all need hope. Hope is what keeps us alive. Hope is what gives us motivation for the future. What a great line, Cheney. A story of hope. Um, Talk, Sean, as your mom talked about your career, tell us more about your career. It seems like, you know, this family is into education. Yes, Um, Yes, we are. (laughs) You've got a mom, a sister, you, and maybe others in your family that are using your gifts to come into the public school sector, in your case, and to teach. Yeah, education definitely runs in the family blood. Um, I I taught for five years as a special educator, um, and... I am now in my fourth year as a vice principal at a high school in Utah County. And I feel so blessed with the career that I have. I am invigorated every day to go to work. I love what I do. Um, I love the people I work with. I love the community and the students and the parents that I serve. Um, As far as, you know, the intersectionality of being gay and navigating the public education space, that for me was pretty challenging. I was very scared to come out um, just because I I didn't know how the community would respond to a teacher or to an administrator being gay in in a very conservative community. Um, I publicly, I actually didn't publicly come out until March 26, 2018, which was just after Matt and I had become engaged. And the response from the community, from the students and from the parents, from everyone, was nothing like what I had constructed in my mind based on my fears. Um, My superintendent, my district administrators, my direct supervisor, the principal at the school, my colleagues, the teachers, have been nothing but incredibly supportive and loving and accepting and embracing of me. Um, 
parents have been so kind. Um, the students have been absolutely amazing. They'll, they'll come up to me and ask me, how's Matt doing? Um, and just those small um, interactions mean the world to me because I am being seen, I'm visible, I'm validated. And the people that I love and care about also love and care about me. And so that's been just a real blessing in my career. Do you have some thoughts on this, Jeannie? Well, as Sean said, we were all pretty afraid about him coming out. I mean, he's living in Utah County, and we have lived at BYU ourselves, and we just thought it would be really tough for him. And I remember several times saying to my husband, I wish he was an accountant. That would be so much easier if he were an accountant, not working with high school students. But like he said, sometimes our fears take over our thoughts and it's just not as bad as you ever think it's going to be. But it actually turned out to be wonderful. We've had, I've had parents just thank me for, for having Sean because he's, he's made a difference in their high school. And I think that's part of his mission in life, I think. Um, talk about, I mean, it, it's, it, it's, it would seem more logical that you would not end up in Utah County and there would be other places to be a gay administrator in our country. And if I'm a parent in Utah County, I'm, I may think I don't want a gay administrator of my children. It may confuse them, but listeners, I've just come to the conclusion that having Sean as a gay administrator He's competent for that job. They just feel safe. They, they, it may give them hope for their future. Back to that word that there's people like me in the world that are contributing back to society. And I'm 15 and I'm LGBTQ, but I see somebody um, that's accepted and contributing back to society. I don't think it means more straight people becoming LGBTQ. I just don't think straight people become LGBTQ by having LGBTQ people in their life. Um, Jeannie said that at the beginning, that this would be the hardest road to choose. Why would anybody choose this? So, and I love that you're contributing back to the community. Anything more before on that segment before we move forward? Um, I appreciate that you said that, you know, maybe people see me in a position and, and LGBTQ youth can um, feel um, a sense of, um, happiness around that. Um, it made me think of my high school principal, um, Mr. Prophet, who, who was gay. Um, and for me being a high school student, I don't think he'll ever know the impact that his position and him being gay had on me. Um, cause here I am in a very similar spot. Um, and he was always very kind and, um, there was no, you know, agenda that was, you know, being pushed there. Um, and so I, I appreciate you saying that because it brought up a good memory for me. So thank you. Um, talk about your feelings about wanting to get married. You've mentioned that a little bit, but tell us about your wedding to Matt and tell us your family involvement. I'm sure your mom was involved and will share some thoughts. Yeah, actually, I'm going to give this one to my mom. She loves talking about our wedding. I could talk another whole podcast about their wedding. Um, after they got engaged, I reached out to Matt's mom and she said something that kind of set the stage for the planning that we did. 
She said, I want their wedding to feel every bit as important as anyone else's wedding. So that helped us to really plan a very joy-filled wedding. I didn't see it at all as a gay wedding. I just saw it as a wedding for two people who loved each other and wanted to make a commitment to each other. And the venue we had on or had in told me that it was the longest reception line they had ever seen in their venue. I think he had well over 300 people, which tells you how loved they both are. We had lots of people there. We had almost all of our family there. There was a few people who didn't quite feel comfortable uh, attending, and but that's okay. We missed having them. But most of the people who came, we had two of our bishops from Princeton come, and they told us how we gave them a different perspective and that they too felt joy there. And quite the the Sunday before Sean's wedding, we went to church with him and his bishop pulled my husband and I aside. And he said, I just want you to know Sean's going to be okay. You don't have to worry about him. And he said, he's been in this ward a long time. He's served beside me and I know his heart and I know how much he loves Jesus. So that that kind of helped me to to feel that peace that I'd been feeling the whole time, but it kind of helped me to know that other people were feeling the same peace I was feeling. And it was just such a joy, joyful day. It was wonderful. Um, yeah, I definitely, I, uh, I love um, Matt and I's wedding. Um, we, mar- we got married on August 1st, 2018. And it's a very sacred day for us. I feel like that day was the closest on earth that I have ever come to feeling what heaven must feel like. Um, so yeah, we had a great wedding. Thanks for sharing that. And thanks mom for being behind that. I think some listeners, and that's why I partly wrote the book was just, how do I navigate this space? If I've got a son or a daughter that's going to a same sex marriage, do I have to give up my church beliefs, which you haven't? Um, can I hold both? Can I support my son on his path, attend his wedding, help financially fund his wedding, and still be a committed member of the church? And I think your teaching is you can do both. And to make that the very best day. And and I, I it's just, it's a part of my book on how I navigate that, listeners, is also a committed Latter-day Saint. Um, but I think one of the things I like about these stories is it's sort of like we've come out of conference. We're recording this not too long at a conference, and we're taught principles there in conference, but often the application of the principles that we're taught are these sort of situations. Um, and what do we do to love one another? What do we do to give each other hope and healing and space? This, to me, is sort of the application, at least in this space, of the things that we learn as Latter-day Saints. Um, let me just look at my notes here. What are some things that we can do at church um, to better support LGBTQ members? I guess I will take that one first. Um, well, one short-term hope I have is that I hope our leadership starts to really educate members and bishops and stake presidents on just how to be more welcoming at church, especially to the LGBTQ members and even their families. Um, my daughter, Krista, just had an experience with her bishop that she had never met before. And he had asked her to come in 
to get to know him. And he asked her about her family. And of course, she tells him about Sean and Matt. And then he, he it seems to sidetrack him. And he, he wants to reiterate the church's position on same-sex marriage. And it ends up with, ends up not turning out well. He didn't get to know Krista. And he ends up taking out the family proclamation, which has got some wonderful thoughts in it. But he ends up using it. And I've heard people say weaponizing it. And I even though you know my husband's been a bishop, I try to be really benevolent to bishops, but I I I know what a challenging calling it is to try to meet needs, but I just felt really, you know, being the mama bear I am, I just felt it was really painful for Krista to have to defend her family to a church leader. But I'd like to just contrast that with mine. I was serving as stake relief site president, and one day during one of our personal meetings with um uh, the stake president, his name is President Bagley. I asked him if I could tell this story, and he said yes. Um, I decided I was going to tell him about Sean. And we've known this man for a long time, good man. And he kn- knew Sean growing up. And President Bagley's first and only question was, how are the people in Provo, and especially in the high school, treating him? And that's all he wanted to know. I think it would have helped. I think it would have really hurt our relationship if he had come out with the church's position. I've been thinking about it for a long time. You know, I, it's something that I feel like that would have felt like a lecture to me. And then when we closed that meeting with prayer, he prayed that the people in Utah would treat Sean with the same amount of compassion that Sean freely gives out to others. And, you know, I just felt like that was kind of a home run that he had done. And it helped me to continue serving in my calling alongside of him. So I hope someday that any LGBTQ person who just desires to go to church, because for many, that's their religious home. And I hope they could just go and participate. Um, shortly after Sean and Matt got married, Sean told me they were going to try to attend their ward. And as LDS parents, we get nervous when our kids don't want to go to church. And I know this sounds kind of messed up, but I get nervous when they want to go to church. I started praying that people would be nice to them. And I just feel like the church has got a little more work to do, just welcoming all of God's children. Actually, Richard, I wish your book would be required reading for every church leader. I think that would be a great first start for the members and the leaders to gain better understanding. Thank you, Jeannie. And I just like you being honest. Um, that sometimes your daughter Krista um, and others have difficult experiences, and I think it's an education. It's not like most members are, some members want to change in doctrine or policy on this issue, but a lot of members are just want a kinder, gentler, more understanding message. Most LGBTQ people and their families know the proclamation on the family, but, and so there's somehow kind of a unaided sort of when this subject comes up, that's what we do. But I think we can just like you suggested, tell me about your brother. Tell me about you. Cause most, you know, Sean's a walking encyclopedia probably is the words I used in the book on everything. And you are too of everything LGBTQ related. I love a quote from elder Renlund from conference, just, you know, um, quote, we will not be judged by we will not be judged by what we say, but how we treat the vulnerable and disadvantaged, Elder Renlund. And I like that because it talks about our responsibility 
uh, maybe we'll be judged on what we say at times, to your point, but I think where the rubber meets the road is how we treat people. And vulnerable and disadvantaged include LGBTQ Latter-day Saints. And so I like that quote. Let's keep moving. Any more thoughts just come to your mind? I'll send it back your way for, or I'll ask you another question. Um, you know, what? I'll, I'll send it back your way, but also with this question, what you've learned over the past 15 years that you'd like to share with other parents or those who are gay? Uh, well, as I said in the beginning, we had a lot of fear and confusion. I think that's normal for parents. We didn't know exactly what to do. We kept it to ourselves for a decade. We didn't even tell our daughter, Krista, because having a, a sister who's autistic, she kind of heard the word retarded a lot. And that she always came home upset about that. And so it was hard for us to, to knowing she was in, going into high school, for her to have another sibling where I knew, having taught in a high school, how often the word gay was kind of thrown around. And so we kind of tried to protect her. I'm, I'm, I'm thinking now maybe we should have told her sooner because she's been such a great ally to Sean. Way to go, Krista that um, we probably should have told her sooner. But during all of this, it took us like a decade, as I said, to kind of work through it with Sean. It kind of did give him a chance to mature, and it gave him the opportunity to make mature decisions. And I'm not sure at 17 he would have been able to do that. So it wasn't all bad, us kind of holding this close to our heart for a long time. I would tell parents not to worry as much. I worried a lot. I didn't need to worry as much as I did. And I think sometimes parents feel they have to choose between the church and their child. But I never felt that way because there are so many parts of the church I love. But then there are some parts of policy and culture and even some doctrine that's difficult for me. But for me, I find Christ in the middle road. That's where I find him. Um, there are some mixed messages that come out that confuse me and frustrate me. And Richard, there's a story that you tell in your book about Cornelius and Peter. And actually that story helped me a lot because when I was growing up, I, always, I was always told I should seek my own revelation. But if that revelation didn't mirror what was coming from our leaders, from the prophet, then my revelation was coming from a different source. But this story helped me understand a little more about that. I love that story too, and I'm glad we include it in the book. And listeners, it's in chapter two, and it's you know part of the gospel going to people that some people felt were unworthy, um, and then through the revelation that was received there, recognizing that everybody's worthy to receive the gospel and the principles of that revelation. I think often apply to us in this day in multiple spaces. So I'm glad I think of things in the New Testament, Jeannie. And I think, well, why did Christ want that in there? Um, just to give us perspective for today. Thank you. Um, throughout the scriptures, you know, we do, as you said, Christ is a great example for compassion for the marginalized. And so when you kind when parents are trying to decide, am I turning my back on the church if I choose my son and if I support him? in what he has to do, I say you should choose Christ. You know, when Jesus saw the blind men, for example, he had compassion on them and touched their eyes and immediately they received their sight. And I think it's not our LGBTQ mm -hmm. siblings that need healing from blindness. I 
really think as the rest of us. I was blind for a long time. I didn't think about other people's experiences in life. Um, but Christ was never afraid to be associated with the marginalized. And so now I no longer worry about Sean standing in God's eye. I know that God loves all of his children. And I feel bad that there are members of our church that may never witness how our LGBTQ members serve their God. I think that's really a loss to them. And I hope, I hope that someday they will be able to welcome them into the, at least into the ward. Any thoughts from you, Sean? Yeah, um, I, I appreciate what was shared. And um, I'm glad we have this on recording because my mom just said that Sean is mature. And I think that might be the only time I've ever heard her say that. So thanks, mom. <laughs> um, yeah, you know, as my mom was speaking, um, I thought about, you know, what would in the past 15 years, and it's kind of crazy, I didn't even realize really it's been 15 years since I came out to my mom, to my parents. Um, but I've been thinking about what would I tell my 17 year old self? with the knowledge that I have now. And I think the first thing I would say is to remember your worth. Um, there's nothing that you can say, do, think, or feel that would make you less of a person than anyone else. No matter um, you know, your background or your experiences, um, your walk of life, um, you're just so completely whole and valid just the way you are. I would also tell myself to be patient with myself. Um, I found over the past, you know, 15 years, I would get very frustrated with myself. Um, and I would tell myself that it's okay if you don't know exactly what you want right now. And it's okay if you think you know what you want today and that changes tomorrow. Um, and just to give myself permission to extend grace unto myself. I think that it would have really helped me um, growing up, knowing that it's okay to make mistakes, that it's okay to be on a learning journey and not be have it all figured out. Um, and then I would also tell myself to make sure to surround yourself with people that you trust and that you know love you and have your best interest at heart. I think it's hard enough being LGBTQ plus um, and navigating the complexities of the world around us. Um, it's even harder to do that alone. And so just being connected and building really meaningful relationships with friends or family members, colleagues, mentors, whoever it is, and keeping them close um, is so important. And that's been really, really um, fundamental to my own progress and, and to helping me to be happy. Jeannie. Well, I just want to say that I, I think that the 17-year-old Sean would be so excited and so thrilled with where the 32-year-old Sean is now. It's not what I envisioned 15 years ago, but it's better. It's better than what I envisioned. And thank you, Richard, for the opportunity to come here and share our story. We 
appreciate everything that you do for this community. We know you don't have a family member in this community, but you must have felt called to do it because it's helped so many people. Your book is awesome. Thank you for writing it. Thank you, Jeannie. Sean, this is a beautiful family love story. And I, it's just deeply moving and touching. Talk. I want to talk. Um, Jeannie, why do you stay in the church? You've kind of talked about this, but you've been honest with difficult experiences in the church and things that you don't completely agree with. And your son doesn't really have a place in the church if, as that he would if he were straight, but yet you stay in the church. Um, and you know, I guess why the church, do you stay? Yeah, it's hard. It's, sometimes it's hard. I want to be honest. Sometimes it's hard. Um, I had read a quote once by um, Chieko Okazaki. Yeah, well said. Yes. And she had talked about how much courage does it take to be in Relief Society and to raise your hand when everyone seems to agree with one point of view, but it contradicts the Savior's law of love. And I've tried to do that. I've tried, and I'm usually the kind of person that sits in back and usually doesn't say anything, but I've tried to raise my hand and ex- show a different point of view to people. Um, we actually started a, a little, well, us with another couple actually started a little support group Good. in our stake. And even though we have a small group, we have two bishops there. We have Great. a Relief Society. Of, I mean, we have people and we have a couple of youth there. And it's, it's just really a place for them to, to get a spiritual message. And that's really been helpful to us. Um, I have been wearing, we decided we're all going to wear a little rainbow pin to church. And some people come up to me and tell me, oh, I'm so glad you're doing that. But then I do get those sideways glances that our LGBT members know all too well. And so in a small way, I've kind of felt a tiny bit of the pain that they have felt. So I just hope by staying in church that maybe I can present a different point of view. That's great. Sean, why do you want, why, you, you don't have a, you know, you're not in the church. You have obviously a great relationship with Heavenly Father and Christ and um, there's not, you know, a place for you in the church to fully participate if you're married to a man. Why, um, why don't, why, I, this is a leading question. Why don't you want your mom to leave the church? Why are you okay with her being in the church and your dad? Oh, I have seen the good fruits that have come from just our entire family's experience being in the church and from them continuing their um faith-filled journey in the church. I mean, right now we have like every Sunday, we have our virtual um, Google video church. Family church. Family church. Um, And it's so important, I feel like, for our own um, growth and development to just have very... um, deliberate time set aside to consider Christ's gospel and his fundamental teachings of loving one another and of being kind and inclusive towards others, of prayer um, and drawing near unto him. I mean, the list goes on and on. um, And just 
having that in our lives for Matt and myself have been, has been so important. Um, so yeah, I, I'm really not cool. only okay with my parents, I guess, continuing in the church. I want them to. That's a great segment. One of the things I recognize is that you obviously are deeply spiritual and want to talk about the gospel and Christ and spiritual things. So I think one of the things where I stepped in this space is I thought everybody sort of didn't fully participate in the church or stepped away, sort of stepped away from God and a relationship with God and desire to be connected with the gospel of Jesus Christ. And you're helping us understand it's more nuanced than that. And that's part of this podcast is I think to bring different stories so we have different perspectives that help us come together, same human family. And, um, you know, listeners, this is just, I'm really glad that we've, Jeannie and I have been trading emails for a couple of years. You know, you wanted to come to Utah. COVID kept you out of Utah. A couple of things kept you from coming. So we've been planning on doing this podcast for quite a while. And I'm so glad that we're able to do it. And I think the Edwards story is just a family story to help us come together as the same family in our differences. Um, and it's just a beautiful love story. And I think it keeps our, I think our heavenly parents are really grateful when families stay close together and we learn to support and love and help each other and just leave any judgment or any wondering about who's going to be at those chairs at the table in the next life at the Savior's feet and not self-conclude, not self-decide that right now. Um, so I think this is just a great story and I think it makes our heavenly parents happy. Jeannie, any final thoughts or Sean, any final thoughts? No, just thank you for inviting us. We is what what a great experience has been. We we've like I said, we've kind of kept the story to ourselves and so it's kind of nice to be able to share it. Yeah, I just want to say that I'm I'm just so appreciative of this opportunity to dialogue with one another and just say how grateful I am that you have created a safe space for people from all different walks of life to share their story. So um, this this is, has been very important to us and to so many other people. So thank you. Thank you. And- Thank you, listeners, for listening. My hope is that this podcast actually helps you have a stronger testimony of our church, a deeper commitment to the gospel of Jesus Christ, Jesus and his teachings, and better tools to love and support our LGBTQ brothers and sisters, and use that gospel and the principles of that gospel to bring us together as the same human family, which the Edwards are doing. So on behalf of the Edwards family, this is Richard Osler. And I encourage you to check out the book that Jeannie's referenced. You, it's called Listen, Learn, and Love, Embracing LGBTQ Latter-day Saints. It's at Desert Book and Amazon. All the proceeds go to a memorial foundation for a young man, young gay man who did die by suicide. Um, and that's the thing we're trying not to do here, not to have occur, is the core of what I'm doing is to bring hope that we're Jeannie, because hope is the thing that brings us out of really dark places. and hearing. A story like Sean, if you're younger, and hearing all the hope and joy and satisfaction in his life often can help pull someone out of that really dark spot. So thank you for listening, listeners, and we'll sign off for another episode of Listen. Listen.